Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And it's the Halloween season once more, so we are re-releasing one of our favorite creepy episodes from last year on the Windigo. Or, as I wanted to call it, the Windigo ate my baby. Yes, yes, that was your original pitch for the title episode. But we did not. We did not. But, uh, yeah, it's creepy subject matter, and it's, I mean, at heart, it's a monster, a monstrous idea, and it's a monster that seems to be picking up more and more in popular culture. Wendigo uh, symbolism played heavily into uh, especially the first season of of TV's Hannibal. Mm Mm-hmm. And in uh, Sleepy Hollow season two, we will be seeing a Wendigo. And in Teen Wolf, there are already, <laughs> already, of course, there's already a Wendigo. So this is the thing about people finding about out about your cool monsters. Is oh, they yeah. end up showing up on Teen Wolf. I know. On the one hand, you're like, ah, oh, yes, it's, it's finding its rightful place in pop culture, and then you're like, oh, Teen Wolf. Yeah, and maybe this is what Algernon Blackwood really wanted. Though we'll see. Maybe. January 6, 1896. I went to see the sick man today, and he's a pitiful-looking devil. They had him with about six blankets, and he still was nearly freezing. I can do nothing for him. January 12th. I went to see him today, and he looks worse than ever. I gave him a dose of castor oil, but he, he says his heart is freezing. He keeps insisting he'll become a cannibal. He wants the Algonquins to kill him before he gets worse. January 20th. Francois came here and asked me if I would read some prayers for the sick man. He doesn't look like a human being. He, he seems to be terribly swollen in the body and face. The sight of him is enough to frighten any person. The poor Algonquin slept very little here for the last 19 days. Since he arrived, they have been watching him all the time. I don't know how this will end. January 21st. Francois came for me last night and I went with him. I told him we ought to take some rope with us and tie him up if we could. The sound of him was terrible. It was like the calling of a wild animal. We tied him with the ropes, and I left to find some more, but, but I couldn't find any, and when I got back, the cords around his arms were already breaking. The Algonquins asked what we should do. They said that when he got up, he would kill all of us. I told them to do what they had to do, as I had no more ropes with which to bind it. That was the account of Francis Work Beaton, uh, the Orkney HPC clerk at the Trout Lake Outpost, the winter of 1896 during the alleged Wendigo possession of Napapin Auger, uh, edited slightly for, cl- for clarity's sake, but otherwise uh, exactly what's in uh, the history books. And we wanted to bring that bit to your attention because what we're talking about is a creature or a possession that has to deal with cannibalism. Yeah, and even though the the, the creature itself is obviously a, a creature of myth, uh, we've talked before about the power of myth, the power of uh, paranormal scripts within a culture, as well as the real-life incidences that have uh, allegedly occurred uh, because of or alongside the, the Wendigo belief. Because if the oral account of this particular Wendigo possession story, as collected by the University of Alberta's Nathan D. Carlson, uh, holds true, then the Algonquin tribes people uh, gave uh, Napapan boiling bear grease in an attempt to cure him mm-hmm. after this uh, uh, this uh, account that I read. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then when that didn't work, they executed him with an axe, cutting off his head and burying it separate from his body. Now, there are various problems, of course, with uh, any account of cannibalism, just, just cannibalism alone, much less when you start involving supernatural uh, immaterial as well. Yeah, and that's the thing about Wingo that is so interesting is it really highlights this issue of cannibalism. And we've talked about this before. It's very hard to really 
pin down cannibalism, what has actually happened mm-hmm. with um, humans, for, with sure. humans yeah. for sure. Actually, in, in nature, it's very easy to explain, right? Yeah, because they, they are not ashamed of it. They're right? not ashamed, and, and they have a purpose, a real clear purpose to their cannibalism. I mean, you have um, the sexual cannibalism in orb spiders, right? Yeah. That helps in terms of sexual reproduction, fitness. And then in tiger sharks, you have siblicide, right? You have a, a tiger that eats, excuse me, a tiger shark that eats a sibling because it's an easy source of energy. Yeah, it's it's just pure economics. It's a harsh world. Sometimes you, you have to reabsorb energy back into the, uh, the the winning prospects, and that's just how it goes. But, of course, in human culture, uh, the economics may still hold true, mm-hmm. but we have all of these layers of, of moral concerns, of, of society and culture that just complicate the equation. Well, I mean, when you say the economics, you're talking about survival cannibalism. In other yes. words, you're just at the end of your rope, and uh, you may be with someone who could provide you with a bit of energy, or perhaps... Perhaps there is even a body who that, that has recently passed that someone uses, and we have many accounts of this survival can, cannibalism in history. Yeah, um, there are ca- accounts that are proven, yes. uh, and then there are accounts that are sort of forever being argued about, such as the, the Dahmer Party, where yeah. some say, well, maybe they didn't uh, resort to survival cannibalism. Others say yes. Some say, well, the, the bones, there's no bone evidence that they did. And others say, well, well, they wouldn't gnaw on the bones. They would have eaten the soft uh, flesh. And, of course, that wouldn't the evidence of that wouldn't survive. Yeah. And then, you know, how many people are, are going to come back from a, a chaotic trip to the mountains and be like, woo, I only survived because I ate my friend Caleb. Right. It's just just probably something that you're going to omit at cocktail parties, right? Um, So, yeah, you've got the survival cannibalism. And then just to complicate things a little bit further, we have these accounts of cultural rituals, which may or may not be symbolic cannibalism, right? They may actually Mm -hmm. have occurred or occurred in different ways that we don't think is cannibalistic. Yeah, well, I mean, you always have the the outsider viewing some sort of uh, cannib- supposedly cannibalistic uh, ceremony or hearing about it. You're having Westerners observe or hear about a ritual that, that from a people that they view as primitive, mm-hmm. and so uh, you know it's hard to, to tack down the actual truth of the matter. Yeah, actually, if you want to uh, look at a good example of this and someone who actually furthered this idea of cannibalism, you can look to Columbus, who encountered the Arawak people in Hispaniola during the 15th century, and they wore him of another tribe, the Carib, that ate people, which it appears this other tribe never existed. <laughs> so this has been really hard for anthropologists to go through and to try to figure out. But as far as I can tell, this other tribe just wasn't a reality. So it may have just been for them this story about another tribe. Just a, kind of a boogeyman. A boogeyman, yeah, right. tell in the night, there's another tribe out there, and they're so bad they eat people. You don't want to be like that, and you don't want them to come for you. Right. Or maybe they just wanted you know, Columbus to hang around, yeah. and they were <laughs> like, hey, we need to get them to stay here with us and not uh, go exploring. So in addition, Columbus may have mistaken the r- ritual of keeping a loved one's bones around the house. So that's what the Arawak d- people did, and he may have mistaken that for evidence of cannibalism. And of course, the whole thing is, is ridiculous, too, when you realize that Columbus... Uh, comes bearing his uh, his Catholic faith, mm-hmm. and of course Catholicism, like a lot of Christianity, is rich in uh, this symbol symbolic consumption of Christ's blood and flesh. Which, uh, even though you're not actually consuming blood mm-hmm. and flesh, uh, it is uh, it is symbolic cannibalism at at heart. Right, which we we see in so many other cultures. Yeah. Um, the problem, of course, is that Columbus was the authority 
on all matters yes. foreign at that point. So people are like, so where'd you go? What'd you see? What'd you experience? And then whatever he said became sort of the gospel. Yeah. And that's one of the problems you, you have throughout history, too. I mean, going back to uh, Plenty the Elder and all these guys, mm-hmm. where you just have certain voices and there aren't a lot of, uh, there's not a lot of discussion about the matter, but, uh, you know, this guy said that there are cannibals living in Africa and that remains sort of the voice of truth for a matter of centuries. So that's why the Wendigo is such an interesting thing to look at because it really gets at the heart of the taboo of cannibalism, but also the psychology of it, the ways in which we behave when we have these folktales as stand-ins for, for what becomes a reality. Yeah. So I want you to imagine a dark, gaunt giant uh, that haunts the woods, clad only in matted hair, and it's peering out at you from the wild depths with blood-red eyes as wild as sinist- and sinister as those of an owl, with claws that are curl and muscles that are coiled with the strength of a bear, and its teeth are eager, and its foul tongue is longing for the taste of human flesh. That sounds cuddly. Yeah. Yeah. Now, this is something that is, uh, this creature is known to different North American tribal groups. Um, and, and when we're talking about the uh, geography here, we're talking about French Canadian territory. Um, and the Algonquins, mm-hmm. are, they figure in this quite a bit, as well as a couple of other, other tribes. Yeah, the Algonquins is one of the most populous and widespread North American native language groups. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, you know, it at different times, it composed like a, a whole bunch of different tribes. You know, there were a lot of different tribes that spoke the Algonquin tongue, and there was a lot of shared beliefs among them. And uh, they th- they thrived in the harsh world of northern North America, a land of uh, you know vast, unforgiving wilderness, brutal winters, particularly during the Little Ice Age era in the 17th to 19th centuries. Which correlates uh, exactly with a lot of this exploration by French Canadians mm-hmm. who met up with these different tribes, and we'll talk about this more, but they began to um, actually adopt some of these folk tales of the Wendigo. And I also wanted to mention that it goes by Wittikau, Wittigo, Wittikio, and Windigo, Wandigo, Windiga, Wittigo, and we go. We go. We go. Right, we go. It sounds like a corporation. Yeah. That secretly is based on cannibalism. It's right. We go. You can we go too. Um, and the cool thing about this is that uh, the the Wendigo really sort of describes two different things at play here. Mm-hmm. One is the beast that you described, who lives in that forest, waiting to feast on a human. The other is a cannibalistic spirit that can possess a human. Yeah, and that spirit kind of walks the barrier uh, between the world and the world of the spirits. And, of course, that's a, a very important area in uh, the tales and the belief systems and the worldview of the, uh, the the first people of North America. Yeah, and if you look at the Algonquins, they, they uh, really focus on these spirits as... Uh, as a sort of cautionary tale to people during these very harsh winters not to turn to cannibalism. Because they're saying that if you eat the flesh of another, well, your soul is now susceptible to the Wendigo. Yeah. There, there were a number of causes, a number of things that could turn you into a Wendigo. Most of them are, are based in diet and food and, and, and hunger. Um, so you might be cursed by a sorcerer. Always a possibility, happens. you know, it'll happen. If you are yourself, if you yourself are a sorcerer, you might seek the transformation yourself. Always an option. Mm-hmm. All right. You might trigger the change if you fast too long or feast too heavily. So 
a little too much food, a little too little food, you're going to potentially open yourself up to the Wendigo's uh, caress. Uh, but most importantly of all, as you mentioned, if you if you were forced to consume human flesh or if you're tricked into doing so, even in a dream, then the Wendigo can reach out to you, touch your soul, and bring on this uh, steady and horrible change. And then you might feel ice in your heart. Yeah. And a longing of, for flesh. Yeah, because that's... Uh, that's that's the big thing, right? There um, there are a number of symptoms, according to the uh, Algonquin reports uh, cataloged by Nathan D. Carlson. Uh, the symptoms include stupor, mm-hmm. catatonia, depression, paranoia, anorexia, or the inability to hold down food, nausea, vomiting, emaciation, glazed eyes, bodily or facial swelling, violence, shouting, hallucinations of family members as food animals, particularly as beavers, and finally. This unstoppable urge to consume human flesh. Yeah, there was one account I was reading in a, a separate book uh-huh. where, like, a, a mother was uh, was potentially turning into a Wendigo, and she was telling her she was mad at her children. She's saying, "You all look like beavers to me now." Wow. So, yeah. Okay. But but it's that. But the the big thing, the, like the major symptoms and, mm-hmm. and the the ultimate symptoms are the unstoppable urge to consume human flesh and this chill in your in your torso mm-hmm. in, in your heart as your heart becomes this lump of ice that's right as the transformation occurs yeah. let's take a quick break and when we get back we'll talk about psychosis All right, we're back. Uh, we were just talking about the symptoms mm-hmm. uh, in the, uh, the the folk tales of the of the Wendigo and uh, and how your heart may seem to become this lump of of, of ice and you have this irresistible uh, urge to consume human flesh. Now there were a few cures, curative measures that were also related in the the folk tales. What I think is interesting before you talk about the curative measures yep. is that people took this folklore. And then they began to exhibit these symptoms. And this is what that psychosis is. These cases of people actually coming down with not actually uh, turning into these sort of werewolf-like creatures, but actually uh, committing some dastardly acts. Yeah, because uh, on one hand, uh, as uh, as Nathan D. Carlson points out in his uh, excellent article uh, reviewing uh, Whitico, an ethno-history of cannibal monsters in the Athabasca district of northern Alberta, 1878 through 1910, um, this was not just a you know a folk tale that mm-hmm. was told. This was something in which there was a lot of belief, there was a lot of fear. He says, "quote." In the collective belief systems of pre-21st century Algonquins, contrary to the opinions of some modern academics as discussed below, the Whitico condition was not a legendary fabrication. For example, in early 1896, Richard Young, the Anglican bishop of the uh, Athabasca district, wrote the following in a letter journal to the Evangelical Fathers in the Church Missionary Society. Quote, The Indians have a great terror of these so-called Wendigoos, or cannibals. They believe that after eating human flesh, their heart becomes a lump of ice and no one alive is safe for them. Absurd as all of this sounds to us, it is a real tear to the untutored Indian. So there's a little, obviously there's a bit of xenophobia and, uh, right. and, and racism in, in that, uh, uh, that particular uh, portrayal. But, but still, it, it underlines that this was, this was serious medicine. And if you're in a situation where you have been forced to resort to survival cannibalism mm-hmm. and then it, and it's known or even if it's known only to you, you, you return. You had a certain shame about it, yeah, right? Yeah, you return with shame. Mm-hmm. Perhaps they, other members of your, uh, your group know that this occurred mm-hmm. and before you know it, you're ostracized. And 
maybe you feel, and there are a number of these symptoms, like there's a whole list of possible symptoms, and if you begin, if you experience one of them or feel like you experience one of them, mm-hmm. uh, combined with the guilt that you feel, then how long before you begin manifesting this, this paranoid idea? And that let, you were transformed. Yeah, let's set the scene for this too. We are talking about these sort of starvation winters that would occur in, in, in this part of the world, um, particularly as you said during that period from mm-hmm. the 17th century to the 19th century. And, you know, you have people who would sort of collectively get together as families during that time and band together and try to survive. Mm-hmm. But there is a, still a huge amount of isolation. So you might be with five, six, seven of your family members. Um, you know, out in the middle of nowhere with this wind whistling or this wind howling. And when you look at these Algonquin um, depictions, the wind uh, is a huge force here. Yeah. So I don't, have you ever been like on the mountain before and, and um, there's just huge amounts of wind coming in at your structure if you're in a tent or in a cabin? Yeah, yeah. It's just a, if you're, you're out in the open, it's just whipping by you. It's all yeah. you can hear in your ears. And if you're in a structure or even, you know, in, in the shelter of a tree or, yeah. or, a, or, or some stone, then it's just whistling by and, it's, and it varies. It's, it's this changing tone, almost a song. Yeah, and I remember when I was in Costa Rica in Monteverde and I, was, uh, I spent a couple of nights in a cabin on the top of the mountain there. And the first night I was like, oh, this is beautiful. It's gorgeous. The second night I was like, it's, this is awful. I cannot get any sleep. The wind is howling. The third night I started to feel like I was going crazy. So imagine months of this going well, on. I want to say, if you resort to cannibalism in Monteverde, that's on you. Don't try and pin that on a Wendigo. Well, that's the thing, right? So I go out with a friend. We're going to go try to trap something. <laughs> you know, maybe he breaks his leg. You know, things aren't looking good for him. So I off him and I have a little bit of his meat. And then, as we, as you said, come back to camp or to your cabin and you're feeling the shame for it. Yeah. Um, now, I did want to point out that Kevin Vulcan, a professor of psychology, uh, he's often called on as a behavioral expert on TV shows and the like, he categorizes it as an extreme form of cabin fever. So again, you've got harsh environmental factors there. You're Mm -hmm. with a couple of people and things can go awry. Yeah, you're with a bunch of people that you love that are also maybe driving you a little crazy. Yeah. And, uh, and I mean, cause that's one of the, the common tropes of the Wendigo story is you have an, like a, a mom or a dad or even both that go nuts and mm-hmm. start eating the kids. And then, you know, you, you eat one kid, then you eat the second, and then, and then it just gets out of hand. Yeah. And Vulcan says it becomes a compulsion. So yeah. there you are in your cabin, the wind howling for months on end, and you begin to really think that you are the Wendigo, right? It's, it's taken hold of you. you. You're feeling icing in your heart and, uh, your, your child is starting to look like a drumstick. Yeah. Or beaver. Beaver. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we're going to continue uh, talking talking about uh, that particular uh, strain, but uh, just to go back, presented cures that uh, that were uh, explored for uh, for the, the Wendigo situation. Uh, Carlson relates uh, several from different sources, but they include uh, drinking high wines by the fire, mm-hmm. which sounds rather pleasant. I would Doesn't say it? that should be your first stop uh, on any uh, attempt to treat uh, a, a suspected Wendigo situation. Uh, next, the, the consumption of heated or even boiling animal flat, fats. So you have some uh, some moose meat, bear meat, what have you. You heat, uh, heat the fat up, get it nice and boiling, and then you drink it. Now, both of these methods... Uh, drinking by the fire and drinking hot animal fat, the idea is that it would help uh, uh, burn away the ice that is formed in the heart. Mm. That's the key to the Wendigo. There was another tale uh, that I believe Carlson related 
in which there was a group of Wendigos, mm-hmm. and they were uh, they were just a, a you know complete terror, and you know eat everyone in sight, and they were particularly hard to deal with because. I mean, on one hand, Wendigos were said to be bulletproof, right, you know, or, or bullets didn't affect them, uh, and the only way to, to really kill them was to deal with that icy heart. Mm-hmm. But these Wendigos had taken their icy hearts out and stored them elsewhere, mm. so they were uh, they were not susceptible to that. Clever, so, yeah. So, um, so those are some options. Also, you could, of course, uh, get a spirit medium to use a shaking tent ritual, which is a special tent in which spirits could be summoned. Uh, but if these didn't work, the only thing to do was to tie the Wendigo down and hack it to pieces with an axe. Burying the pieces uh, so as to keep it from becoming whole again and killing everyone in sight. Now, someone uh, by the name of Jack Fiddler, an Oki Cree member, actually took that to heart and be- kind of became the Van Helsing for oh, his community yeah. of Wendigos. He claimed to have slayed 14 people who were possessed. And he was in prison when he murdered a woman who he says was on the verge of turning into a Wendigo. Oh. So just so you know, there were people out there that were trying to actually, you know, stop it before it started, what they really thought was going to be a possession. And, of course, we have so many different examples of people who actually did this to their families, who actually ate their families. So you can see why someone like Jack Fiddler might really take this to heart as his cause, mm-hmm. uh, his his reason for being yeah. Now, of course, one of the of course the problems we mentioned uh, with the cannibalism and cannibalism stories. So the Wendigo stories were were told in a in a you know around the campfire and a, a, by a by, Al- by Algonquin uh, tribes people who really loved stories and mm-hmm. told stories. And the nature of stories that are told as is that you uh, you take on stories as your own that are other people's. You uh, you prop up a story by saying you were there when you weren't. All of these things happen. The fish gets a little larger with each telling, uh, etc. And then you have the the French Canadian. Uh, uh, voyagers, the, mm-hmm. the travelers, mm-hmm. uh, who are uh, who are who are meeting these people, trading mm-hmm. stories with them, and of course they're really into telling stories as well. Uh, so we can't take every story to heart, but some of them are are, are actually really well founded. For instance, uh, the Swift Runner case. Mm-hmm. Now, this was a Cree trapper who serially murdered and consumed the bodies of his wife and five children. Uh, and this was near uh, Athabasca Landing Trading Post uh, in the north uh, central uh, in north central Alberta in the winter of 1878. And um, all the murders except the last one were more of a clear case of uh, starvation cannibalism, mm-hmm. but then the last one, well, I'll just read you what he had to say uh, when when he was uh, interviewed. He said at that that moment the Wendigo suddenly took possession of my soul and in order to live longer far from people and to put out of the way the only witness to my crime I seized my gun and killed the last of my children and ate him as I had done the others. Some weeks later I was taken by the police sentenced to death and in 3 days I am to be hanged. And indeed this is where it gets a little a little extra historical importance uh, added to this mm-hmm. is that according to Carlson, uh, Swift Runner was the first person hanged by the Mounties, the, the Mounted Police, uh, which uh, which gives this uh, Swift Runner Wendigo case a unique position in the history of Canadian jurisprudence. So the thing about this is that we don't know that it's actually a psychosis. Right. Uh, in fact, academics have seen it or they've talked about it as a culture-bound psychosis, but they've also called it um, perhaps a culturally localized manifestation of paranoid schizophrenia because mm-hmm. we see some mental illness um, in this area. And then a uh, correlate of scapegoating. And then also in Nathan D. Carlson's paper, uh, Reviving Whitico, he says that it could have been a culturally mediated performance. So in some ways, again, it was taking to heart this, uh, this story and performing it in a way. Uh, perhaps that person didn't actually 
want the taste of flesh. Yeah. But they were caught up in the moment in these long winters and the sort of disease that would settle in with this. And maybe they began to display these histrionics. Yeah, and then also there there are situations where you can well imagine one using the, the Wendigo uh, idea and Wendigo uh, uh, stigma for personal gain. Like, for instance, yeah. uh, here at work. Uh, so we all have new desks. Mm-hmm. Um, Loudermilk, Allison Loudermilk, has a particularly nice desk. It's like right next to the window. Mm-hmm. It's pretty good. So I can imagine uh, that if uh, Loudermilk were to be accused of being a, a Wendigo, mm-hmm. um, you know, someone might say, well, hey, I kind of want Loudermilk's desk. Uh, so I'm going to jump in on that bandwagon uh, and try to to push that uh, that idea uh, among my uh, my fellow uh, coworkers, uh-huh. and then you eventually reach the point where there's nothing left to do but chop her into pieces, and then uh-huh. lo and behold, I'm sitting in her new desk. Okay, so you're the one who started the rumor, yes, about not going into the bathroom alone yes. when Ladder Milk was using it, yes, and about what she's really been bringing in her lunch pail. Okay, mm-hmm. the second thing, some I want to mention is that some of us might apply a little magical thinking to that space and think that they wouldn't want to inhabit it for fear of being possessed by the Wendigo as well. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, It's been picked up over the years. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about how it was picked up by the, the French Canadians. But, of course, even in modern culture, uh, you see it uh, show up in, uh, in different forms of media. For instance, uh, Stephen King's novel Pet Cemetery mm-hmm. has a Wendigo in it that uh, I remember is working pretty well. Um, the movie Ravenous uh, is... a uh, it also features the Wendigo myth pretty strongly, kind of, kind of taking it and combining with uh, Western vampire uh, folk- folklore to yeah. create kind of a, a, I think, an interesting animal. It's been a while since I've seen it, but it has a really awesome soundtrack by uh, Damon Auburn of uh, Blur and Gorillas and minimalist composer Michael Nyman. And uh, let's see, there was Larry Fresden's film Wendigo, which was uh, like an indie horror film that was pretty interesting, and the TV show Hannibal has sort of dream hallucination sequences in which a Wendigo character appears that uh, that I thought was pretty effective. And uh, one of the pieces of media that may have started at all in terms of mass consumption, uh, sorry about that pun, is Algernon Blackwood's 1907 short story, The Wendigo. You know, and I, I like Algernon Blackwood. Mm-hmm. I have enjoyed his writing in the past, but I, I started to reread uh, his Wendigo story, mm-hmm. and I, I have to say I didn't like it. I didn't feel like it was really uh, very Wendigo-y. You know, it was just, he kind of took the, the name Wendigo and some a certain amount of the feeling for it, but then it, I don't know, I, I thought, thought it felt kind of, felt like it fl- fell flat a bit. Well, though, you, you could say that at that point, Blackwood didn't have this sort of vast stores That's of true. information about the Wendigo to pull from. He couldn't go to the Wikipedia or, or listen to our podcast. He no, no, he probably yeah. had a French-Canadian friend who was yeah. like, let me tell you about this crazy thing that happened to a friend of a friend of a friend of mine's. Right, and when someone tells you a story like that, especially when it's from a different culture, mm-hmm. what can you do but combine uh, the, the scraps that you are given that may or may not make sense uh, from, from your own cultural standpoint, mm-hmm. you combine it with the ideas that you already have in your own culture, and you end up with sort of a, a new animal, a new myth emerges from this uh, synthesis of ideas. Yeah, so let's, uh, let's sort of do some time traveling here to, say, the Lake Superior region in Canada, mm-hmm. 1850s. Uh, you probably would hear a French-Canadian really complaining about this really harsh winter and saying that they were so hungry and there were so little resources that they actually boiled their moccasins yes. and ate them. I mean, these are true accounts. And, um, I but, think- then, but then also of the story that is so popular that you end up telling it even if you didn't necessarily experience it. Right. And yeah. then, of course, one thing leads to another and you start talking about cannibalism, right? Because right. you say, oh, man, if I ate... My, my moccasins, whew, I'm just two seconds away from, from you, buddy, right? And the conversation gets really awkward. 
Yes, this was this was all excellently discussed in Werewolves and Wendigos, uh, Narratives of Cannibal Monsters in French-Canadian uh, Voyager Oral Tradition by uh, Caroline uh, Potruchny of uh, York University, mm-hmm. where uh, she, she really goes into what happens when the, the, the French-Canadian uh, Voyagers uh, encounter the Algonquins and start swapping tales. Yeah, because you have to, uh, again, sort of imagine this, this uh, time period. There were missionaries, fur traders, colonists, uh, the voyagers all going through and, and meeting different tribes and then hearing about these atrocities. Now, if you are someone who is French Canadian, you might be familiar with some other folklore from Europe, like yes. say werewolves. So it wouldn't be too crazy because you may have a belief system that supports that. Yeah. Cause the werewolf myth, of course, is that on certain nights, uh, because of the moon, uh, you know, maybe some curses are in play as well, but a man transforms into a wolf or a wolf-like being and then goes out and eats things, uh, including human flesh. And then the next morning he's like, whoa, what did I, what did happen? What did I do? What horrible things happened to me? What kind of monster did I become? Right. And then you've got the whole like, man, I was boiling my, uh, my moccasins and, and you have all these other accounts. In fact, I wanted to bring up Jamestown 1609. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that colony had such a harsh winter that we know that they engaged not in just uh, eating, say, dogs, cats, and horses, but recently this year, w- the bones of a 14-year-old girl were, were uh, excavated, and um, Douglas Owsley, he's the Smithsonian forensic anthropologist who analyzed the bones, says, given, given these bones in a trash pit all cut up and chopped up, it's clear that this body was dismembered for consumption. So in, in the same way, if you um, have these this folklore from Europe and you know about werewolves, and you know that people can be transformed into them, and you also have these folk tales standing in for moral code. Then, as a European um, who is in this territory, this Algonquin territory, you probably would say, "Wow, we got to watch out here." Yeah, because I mean, the werewolf myth ultimately revolves around the idea. You know, what happens if I give in to my bestial nature, or what if my, mm-hmm. my bestial nature overcomes me? What if I give in to the economic sensibility? of cannibalism, for instance, uh, despite all of my human moral standing. And so there's a, there's, there's a lot of, uh, of comparisons to be made between the werewolf myth and the Wendigo myth. And you can mm-hmm. definitely see where the werewolf myth would help you understand the Wendigo myth. Even though the Wendigo myth is totally about human, uh, human flesh being consumed, totally about cannibalism, whereas cannibalism is just sort of one aspect of the werewolf myth. Yes, Padrakni actually says in, in, as you say, her fine paper that what we can learn from this is that the cannibal monster stories that voyageurs told each other reveal many aspects of their lives and cosmology, mm-hmm. such as starvation, mental illness, and metamorphosis. Because in a way, they were undergoing a transformation themselves. Yeah, they started out as Westerners in a strange world. They travel out into this just, I mean, it's kind of hard to imagine. There, so, some books have, have really done a great job of of portraying this excursion into the, the wilds mm-hmm. of some of this territory. I think of like Northwest Passage. Uh, I also think of Black Robe, uh, excellent book. Um, you, you go into this just rich, wild world where there are no Westerners. There, there are these, these foreign peoples that mm-hmm. you can only partially understand that have a totally different worldview than you do. And, uh, and then you start and you're in dealing with 
with limited resources. You're suddenly you find yourself starving or you're you're ill. Uh, and then what are you to to make of, of all that? And then over time, you have the Westerners uh, assimilating more and more with the native cultures to mm-hmm. the point where they're they're taking uh, they're taking Algonquin brides. They're 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 be, they're becoming their own uh, communities right. with uh, this shared uh, uh, mythos uh, that has been weaved together from both uh, the the Algonquin traditions and the uh, the European traditions that they uh, imported. And yet xenophobia exists, and that's where it becomes really interesting because the Wendigo is really a stand-in for this otherness. As you said, these are people in a a new land with new experiences, and everything is the other, including the Algonquin at some point in other tribes. So, uh, you know, with the Wendigo carries this idea that you're you're engaging in this other world, the supernatural world. You know, I can't, in thinking about the the Wendigo, I keep coming back to some material that we came across in our uh, episode on the problem of hell where we mm-hmm. talked about the the old gods that that uh, societies had the uh, hunter gatherer gods the horned gods that were more chaotic that were uh, that, that dealt uh, thematically with the the scarcity of food and mm-hmm. the the uncertainty of tomorrow's meal and the meal after that and the, the and, and in doing so you can see where the you can see why the Wendigo is really the ultimate evil spirit of the Algonquins, because it represents the uncertainty of food. It, it represents the the likelihood, uh, at, even at times, of starvation and in falling. Uh, what it would take to fall below the barrier, the threshold for. Um, Civilization, you know, because I feel like a lot of our stories deal with that. Like we watch mm-hmm. a show like Breaking Bad, and we see like these characters. You see a character that's right. falling throughout the entire show, and at what point does he fall below the threshold? And you see these other characters, that you know, addicts and whatnot, and you you look at them and you think there is a character who's fallen below the threshold. Woe is you know, would be me if I were to 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 fall that low as well. And uh, in in a society like that, like that is the the base mark cannibalism. You've fallen below the, the, the moral standing that defines, that, that protects the culture. Well, right. And it's a reminder of that time period when the, the uh, line between, uh, you know, death and survival which is just like that. You could cross over it so quickly. So it would be tempting to mm-hmm. engage in cannibalism if you had to because it may be the difference between life and death. Indeed, Padrukny, uh points out that a lot of these stories, these shared stories uh, of the Wendigo that the French Canadians shared with the Algonquins, that there were, there were two lessons uh, essentially in all of them, uh, particularly for the, uh, the, uh, the French Canadian uh, listener. First of all, the idea that the native peoples are your friend or at least to be relied upon in the mm-hmm. wilds. Because a lot of these stories, they end with either uh, you're starving and uh, and some Algonquins come along and they, they feed you and then you're, you're saved. Or the Wendigo situation happens and they're the ones who come with the knowledge of how to defeat the Wendigo or they actually chop it up for you. But then the second lesson, and this lesson, she says, is a, is a, a little more subdued. The lesson is that starvation cannibalism is an option. It's so kind of a whisper in the ear saying, so this is horrible, but if you got to do it, you can do it. And if it's going to get whispered into your ear, you might as well blame it on the wind, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, the thing about this is that anthropologists, when they began to study this in earnest, found that it pretty much dried up. All of these these expressions of Wendigo possession uh, just evaporated. Mm-hmm. So, again, it, it brings into question whether or not it was really a psychosis uh, or if maybe this part of the world was opening up and um, there were other influences going on.
So there you have it. Uh, again, this is one of our uh, our favorite creepy episodes from the past few years. So uh, we figured you would like to explore it again, and we we got a chance to to listen to it again as well. Yeah, and if you guys have any ideas about this, the, the power of folklore, um, whether or not you maybe have even seen a Wendigo in your midst or become one, uh, let us know. You can email us at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit howstuffworks.com. 